0: You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. Courts in both Colorado and Minnesota are hearing cases this week over separate lawsuits to disqualify former President Donald Trump from appearing on the 2024 presidential ballots in those states. Both cases revolve around the 14th Amendment, which has a clause that prevents candidates from running for office if they engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution after having taken an oath of office. The plaintiffs are arguing that the former president's involvement in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol makes him ineligible to appear on the ballot next year. Attorneys for Trump say he didn't engage in insurrection and that the courts at the state level would overstep the separation of powers by disqualifying a candidate from a national election. Both cases are expected to be decided by early January and are likely to be appealed may end up all in the U.S. Supreme Court. Our next guest conducted a legal analysis of the arguments in the case and is here to help us understand each side. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you been following this line of argument? Do you think Trump should be kept off of ballots based on the 14th Amendment? Why or why not? Should a similar case come up in Wisconsin? Do you have questions for our legal expert, Call in at 800-642-1234, that's 800-642-1234, or email ideas at wpr.org. David Schultz is a professor of political science at Hamlin University and professor of law at the University of Minnesota. He's the author of several books on politics and law, including Trumpism, American Politics, and the Age of Politainment. David, welcome back to Central Time.
1: Thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure to be here.
0: Before we get into the specific cases in your state, David, and in Colorado, let's talk about this bigger argument. Now, there's a buzz. A couple of conservative legal scholars wrote this big piece considering this clause in the 14th Amendment saying, yeah, it does apply today and it applies to former President Trump. Can you talk us through the the outline of this argument?
1: Sure, and what the two legal scholars do is to engage in, as you indicated here, they went back and looked at this, this Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, and you, you you more or less paraphrased it on the air. And their argument is that first, that this clause was not written just to apply to the circumstances of the Civil War, but that it has an enduring life even to this day. Second, even though the clause doesn't specifically refer to the President of the United States. Um, we could infer that it does apply to the President or that the clause essentially amends the qualifications to be President of the United States. Three, that in applying it to the contemporary situation, what happened on January 6, 2021 is insurrection and therefore. As a result of that, that if Trump engaged in insurrection, if this clause still has life today, if it applies to the president of the United States, their argument is that then election officials have a requirement, a duty to exclude Donald Trump from the ballot and prevent him um, from um, from appearing on the ballot in 2024. Now, technically what the insurrection clause says is that you're ineligible to hold office. Uh, But as the lawsuits in Colorado and in Minnesota, and I believe there's one in Michigan and there's a pending one, I think possibly in Arizona, they're basically saying that also means ineligible to actually appear on the ballot. But that's sort of the core of their argument that this clause written back um, in the 14th Amendment, again, during the Civil War, applies to Donald Trump to this day.
0: One of the phrases they use in that piece, I think, is uh, self-enforcing, meaning that just like the, the requirement you have to be of a certain age to run for president and that you have to uh, have American citizenship, there's nationality requirements, right. they're saying same thing. This automatically applies if you're in violation of it, you're not eligible. It seems a lot trickier. It seems like there's a dicier argument there than you're, you can just look at somebody's age on their birth certificate and say yay or nay. You can look at their citizenship and say yay or nay. This seems a lot more subtle.
1: It is subtle and more complicated. And if I can, and I know you're saying to speak to it more generally, and I will here, is that figuring out what we actually mean by um, an insurrection is a matter of debate. I mean, most people would concede and say what happened during the Civil War where the South seceded from the Union. that. Probably qualifies mm-hmm. um, as as an insurrection, and the whole goal back then was to prevent people who had served in Congress or in state legislatures, who then served the Confederacy, from coming back now and holding office in the United States because they're concerned that what they're not going to be loyal to the United States. So we we have a whole bunch of stuff that probably worked back then, but in terms of self-executing right now or self-enforcing, it becomes more complicated to figure out, well, what do we mean by an insurrection? Who has the authority to keep Trump off the ballot? If, if you're going to rule that it's an insurrection, by what type of evidence? What evidence is admissible? Um, if, for those of you who know some differences between civil and criminal law, is it a criminal law standard of evidence beyond a reasonable doubt? Is it civil in terms of preponderance of evidence? This is where it gets a lot trickier in terms of, determining, is it it, self-enforcing? And and it's self-executing.
0: Talking to David Schultz, professor of political science at Hamlin University of Law at the University of Minnesota, looking at this 14th Amendment argument in a couple state courts this very week, saying President Trump, former President Trump, should not be on ballots because of a clause in the 14th Amendment. You can join in with your Thoughts, your opinions on this, or your questions about it at 800-642-1234. All right, David, let's uh, head over to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Uh, Yesterday, uh, one of uh, former President Trump's attorneys, Nicholas Nicholson, made the argument that voters should decide whether Trump gets back into the White House, not the courts. Here's a listen
2: authority reflects an important
1: reality about the purpose of the political question doctrine, which is to ensure that obviously political questions and judicial questions remain separate. Political decisions and judicial decisions remain separate. We think that's an important part of a healthy separation of powers. We think Owens reflects that. We think all the other cases reflect that. And we think the outcome should be the
2: same here.
0: That's a concern, I think, not even just from critics of former President Trump, that uh, this is a big – this could be, if courts go along with this idea, a big intrusion of the courts into a political electoral process.
1: Yes, and and I think what some people are concerned about is take us back approximately 25 years ago – to the u.s supreme court decision in bush v gore where there was a dispute over vote counting in in florida in a presidential election and the u.s supreme court entered and it halted the vote count and many people said that what the court did was wrong that it essentially decided that george bush was going to become president of the united states and for a lot of people there's this concern that that It should be not the courts, but the people that get to decide who to be president of the United States. And in Thursday's oral arguments before the Minnesota Supreme Court, Chief Justice um, Hudson, I think, asked the most interesting question. And she turned to the attorneys representing the group that wanted to exclude Donald Trump. And she said, even if we as the courts have the authority to do this, should we do this? And, and she was echoing this point that Trump's attorney was making is that when in doubt, the courts should not, this is her comment, or a paraphrasing, um, when in doubt, courts shouldn't decide elections, let the people decide the elections, the outcome outcome of who's going to become president of the United States. And, and, and that's, a and whether you like Trump or dislike Trump, that's a pretty powerful argument to say that that we don't want judges picking presidents. We want what? We want the people to have a voice in here. And any decision, as you did in my intro here, any decision on the merits in Colorado or in, in Minnesota or elsewhere is likely to get it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court where they might ultimately make a decision. Does Trump appear on the ballot or not appear on the ballot?
0: You mentioned the Chief Justice of Minnesota Supreme Court, uh, Natalie Hudson. Here is the Chief Justice uh, bringing up another uh, concern uh, about this case.
1: It does seem to me that you run square into the problem that Chief Justice Chase talked about in Griffin, where you have the potentiality of 50 different states um, who, depending on the, the nature of the statutes in those states, Uh, Deciding this question differently, deciding whether states have the right to determine uh, who's eligible for a national office. And, And that concerns me that you have this possibility for, as Justice Chase said, for just chaos. So should we do it, even if we could do it and we can do it?
0: As She ended there on the bit that you mentioned earlier. But this issue right. of, OK, it's a federal election for president, but states administer elections. So here we are in state courts. I don't know. I'm confused about the venue a little bit here. Why should a bunch of different state courts be weighing in on this issue?
1: And that's exactly, I think, the concern that Justice Hudson had here. It's not just a it's not just a. um separation of powers. It's a federalism issue at the end of the day. Uh, So what if Minnesota and Colorado and let's say Michigan throw Trump off the ballot, but other courts reach a different conclusion? We have this kind of patchwork quilt going on here in terms of each different state saying he's eligible or not eligible, he's an insurrectionist or not. And I know the attorneys trying to get Trump off the ballot said, well, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to resolve uh, will eventually resolve this issue if we get enough different opinions here. But still, it does raise this kind of concern that should we let, I don't know, the state of Minnesota make a decision that could have an impact for the entire country of the United States? I know Minnesota and Wisconsin are neighbors and outside of our sports rivalry. You know, we actually are are very close in terms of states here. But I don't but I'm not sure um, Wisconsin wants Minnesota deciding. Um, Who's going to be president of the United States or or are making decisions that are going to impact the voters in Wisconsin?
0: We're talking to political science and law professor David Schultz about lawsuits in Colorado and Minnesota and some on the way elsewhere, aiming to keep former President Trump off of presidential ballots in those states in 2024 based on an argument uh, from a provision in the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think of this notion? Good idea? Bad idea? What do you worry about? What do you hope for? What is confusing you about this? If you're confused about something, you're not alone on this, I'm guessing. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up next on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with David Schultz, political science professor at Hamlin University, law professor at the University of Minnesota, with us today to look at the legal arguments and lawsuits going on this week in Minnesota and Colorado. Others on the way that aim to disqualify former President Trump from the 2024 presidential ballots in those states based on a clause in the 14th Amendment. Let's go to your calls at 800-642-1234. Tom is with us in Milwaukee. Tom, hi.
1: Hi, I'd like to ask your guess. Um, my impression is that these lawsuits have been filed by conservative groups. Uh, you, you, you know, the uh, I think the assumption would be that they would be uh, democratic groups that would be trying to prevent uh, Trump from running again. So, is there any particular
0: reason for that? Tom, thanks for the call. David, my understanding is it, it uh, is a mix of voters in some cases. Some are Republicans, as we mentioned, uh, some conservative legal scholars advanced this idea. A, judge, a conservative guru-type judge, J. Michael Luddig, has spoken out in favor of this 14th Amendment interpretation. This isn't just, I guess, a liberal conservative argument.
1: And you're absolutely correct that the two professors who wrote this, um, I actually know one of them. Um, one of them is one of my former teachers, Michael Stokes Paulson, um, is, is 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 quite conservative, uh, but it's been sort of picked up by a variety of different groups. The coalition that is bringing the uh, the lawsuit in Minnesota um, is is a supposedly bipartisan group. It's composed of a former Secretary of State in Minnesota who was a Democrat, a former. Justice on the Minnesota Supreme Court, who was a Republican, and so if we look at it across the country, um, it's it, it really is an interesting coalition um, that's bringing these suits. That for a variety of political reasons, both let us say Democrats and liberals, and some in the Republican Party who are who are not supportive and don't like Donald Trump, they're kind of coming together here to uh, um, to bring these kind of lawsuits.
0: Tom. Thanks for the call. Christopher joins us now in Fitchburg. Christopher, hi.
1: Hi. Um, you said I think several times that uh, why should Minnesota be deciding for, like, say, Wisconsin who the president could be, but
0: they're not, right? They're just deciding who in Minnesota is on the ballot,
2: um, which, and in Colorado or the other states, um,
1: which are likely to be a Democratic-leaning state
0: anyway. Christopher, thanks for the call. Yeah, if the state court in Minnesota said uh, no Trump on the ballot, uh, that might not affect the outcome of the election nationally at all, potentially.
1: It might not affect it, although there becomes interesting questions here in terms of, he's right, Minnesota and Colorado are likely to go Democrat. Why, why might they want to do this um, if you're a group that wants to keep them off? Your, let's say a Democratic leading group. Well, if you don't have to really worry about defending Minnesota, can you now shift some of your resources over to the state of Wisconsin? Um, and therefore, Wisconsin being a much more of a swing state than Minnesota. Uh, that And so, so I think tactically that's going on here in terms of what's happening. I should also mention one other thing here is I think Justice Hudson and some of the other justices mentioned it also yesterday in the oral arguments. Even though right now it looks like Donald Trump is going to get the nomination um, for the Republican Party or is in the lead, we still have a long way to go. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the next six months? Maybe Nikki Haley, maybe Tim Scott, maybe somebody catches fire. Maybe he doesn't get the nomination. Maybe the the um, all the lawsuits, all the criminal inquiries against him, um, he's there's convictions things could change and so I just mentioned this also because there are a lot of things that could change and I think Minnesota was concerned about about are we just not ripe are we just not there to even have this conversation but I do think that what happens even in safe states or relatively safe states like Minnesota in that mean it has an impact in terms of resource shifting and campaign strategy including in states like Wisconsin
0: thanks for the call Christopher Brad joins us now in Wild Rose Brad hi Hey, what did you want to bring up, Brad?
1: Say, I just want to make a comment. I I think that, you know, if, if Trump truly did do something that, you know, would be illegal enough to take him off the ballot, I think that should be done in every state.
0: Brad, thanks a lot for the call. That is the argument, uh, I think, obviously, from the people bringing these cases, David.
1: It is exactly. And I think in part what they're hoping is that if they get, let's say, a favorable ruling in Colorado or Minnesota, that the case eventually gets it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court and agrees with them. There was a conference at the University of Minnesota earlier this week, and some law professors were speculating. Now, I don't agree with their speculation. They were thinking, oh, there are maybe four or five votes on the U.S. Supreme Court right now to, um, to keep them off the ballot nationwide. Well. I, I don't believe that I think I think that was just sort of kind of you know idle chatter, but but I think that's the hope. Get a favorable ruling in a sympathetic court. Now, I should also point out that one of the concerns that some of us have expressed about this is that remember Donald Trump's narrative from four years ago or three years ago is stolen election. What would happen if if he's actually thrown off the ballot in a Colorado or in a Minnesota? Doesn't this feed into the, the, um, the narrative of Trump that somebody's trying to steal the election? And I wonder right now if these lawsuits can backfire in terms of both giving, giving um, what is it, cogency to his argument and maybe mobilizing even more some of his supporters.
0: Thanks a lot for that call Brad and you uh you did a presentation on this very issue you shared the slides with us and one of the phrases that stands out to me here is policy and political considerations weigh against exclusion of the former president can you uh talk about that a little more
1: Sure a variety of things one i just mentioned here mm-hmm. the the, po- the policy consideration or political consideration of the backfire you know um, by the very fact that the lawsuits are being brought Is it not feeding into Trump's narrative about stolen elections? The policy consideration I talked a little bit about before also in terms of do we really want courts at the end of the day to to make decisions about who's going to be able to eligible for president? But then I'm also wondered about a political tit for tat that let's say Minnesota or Colorado throws Trump off the ballot. What if now some group challenges, and again, we're going to presume for the sake of argument, challenges Joe Biden's candidacy and says that something he did, and I don't know what it is, um, something that he did makes him an insurrectionist and therefore tries to pressure to get him off the ballot. That becomes, I think, one of the considerations, too, in terms of does this set a dangerous precedent for uh, perhaps playing this larger, I don't know, what they they going to call a tit for tat, cat and mouse game, whatever it may be. So for a variety of reasons, when I did this presentation before the State Bar Association the other day, we were raising a lot of these questions in terms of legally, um, does this clause even apply to this day? There's a lot of legal historians. And remember, I'm not a historian, but I defer to legal historians. A lot of legal historians that say. Eh, this was written really to address the civil war, not to this. And then, and then even after we get past the legal issues, it is these policy and um, political considerations that we have to think about.
0: Time for one more quick call. Joe is with us in Platteville. Joe, hi. Uh, Yeah, your your guest just hit on what I was calling about. This was designed for the civil war uh, to keep the old Confederates out of the congress they tried to join in their old uniforms and everything and it got everybody all ticked off and we've really as i understand it have talked about it in courts in such a way that it or interpreted it that it's not even usable anymore joe thanks a lot for the call in our last few moments david you were just uh, hinting at that there's certainly not universal agreement that this thing would still apply
1: you're absolutely correct here. Again, again, I remind people I'm a lawyer, I'm a law, law professor, I'm a political scientist, not a PhD in history, not an expert <laughs> on this, but I did a lot of reading and consulted some of the best books and historians out there. And and they're not convinced that this applies to this day, that as a caller just called in and said that this was about the unique circumstances of the Civil War, as the caller just indicated, and maybe this doesn't even apply at all.
0: Joe, thanks for the call. And David, thanks again for joining us today.
1: My pleasure, always. And thank you to the audience for calling in. That's
0: David Schultz, professor of political science at Hamlin University of Law at the University of Minnesota. Talk to him today about lawsuits in Minnesota and Colorado. More to come, it looks like, that argue former President Trump should be disqualified from the 2024 presidential election based on a clause in the post-Civil War 14th Amendment to the Constitution. Coming up Monday on Central Time. Colder weather and less daylight might prevent us from getting outside, but we'll get some inspiration to help us enjoy the outdoors all the way through the winter. Plus, we'll get a taste of Wisconsin horror with the author of a new novel set in the state and take a wider look at horror in fiction. That and more coming up Monday here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, we'll talk to a large carnivore specialist at the DNR about the agency's new wolf management plan for the state. I'm Rob Ferret. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time. You're listening to the Ideas Network. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Last week, Wisconsin's Natural Resources Board approved the Department of Natural Resources' new wolf management plan for Wisconsin. The DNR's previous plan had a population goal of 350 wolves in the state. Wisconsin now has almost 1,000 wolves, and the new plan sets a range from 800 to 1,200 wolves in the state. The decision comes after opposition from legislative Republicans that included rejecting several appointees on the Natural Resources Board. We're talking about Wisconsin's new wolf management plan. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have thoughts on the DNR's new wolf management plan? Uh, Do you have questions about it? Are there changes you'd like to see made one way or another? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Randy Johnson is a large carnivore specialist for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Randy, thanks a lot for joining us today.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's take a look at the uh, current or the last uh, wolf management plan. What has been in place, uh, Randy, now for some years here in Wisconsin?
2: Yeah, we've had a management plan for wolves in in uh, in place, actually going back to the 1980s. Uh, but the most recent iteration was first written and approved in 1999. Uh, it got a small overhaul uh, in the late 2000s. But, um, you know, much of that plan was really focused on wolf recovery in the state and trying to bring back this native species that uh, had been extirpated in the eight, uh, 1900s. And, and so much of those plans were focused on wolf recovery. And so it talked about uh, trying to grow those populations. How do we deal with conflict in certain situations and, and things like that? Um, but as we know, uh, uh, the wolf population has grown and has recovered Uh, And that's where this new plan comes into place. One big uh,
0: factor in some ways out of Wisconsin's control, whether or not the gray wolf is currently listed as endangered in states like Wisconsin. This has gone back and forth over the years. Can you give us the latest and and how it affects uh, our wolf management plans here in the state?
2: Yeah, for sure. So we have our state management plans, um, but what we're talking about here is Uh, At the federal level, uh, wolves uh, have been mostly uh, included on the federal list of endangered species over the last, you know, several decades. Um, It it does go back and forth, but uh, they are currently still on the federal endangered species list. And this has a lot of implications on uh, wolves and wolf management in the state. Um, Probably the two most impactful uh, pieces are the availability of public harvest of wolves uh, in the state, uh, as well as, uh, lethal uh, uh, conflict abatement options uh, in the case of livestock uh, conflicts or, or things like that. So, uh, when they're on that federal list of endangered species, those options are off the table. Uh, and 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 obviously, when they're off the list, then then those options become available. Okay, so that's the background. Now, bring
0: us into uh, this new plan just approved by the Natural Resources Board. Uh, could you talk about? Uh the guidelines, the uh, goal range for wolves in the state, and why we arrived at these
2: uh, these numbers. Sure, yeah, so this this plan, you know, kind of bringing it full circle, it really moves our, our management program, our management focus uh, into uh, kind of alignment with where the population's at today. And that is, it recognizes that the population has biologically recovered, uh, and it, it outlines, you know, the management program for a recovered species. Uh, this includes, you know, things like our, our conflict program, uh, potential wolf hunting seasons, as well as a lot of other things like uh, public education and research needs and, and collaboration, things like that. Um, a, a big part of of any management plan is, is trying to outline, you know, what the population is going to look like, how many, where uh, in the state, those types of things. And, and through this process, we've moved away from identifying a specific number of wolves as our management goal, uh, and instead are focused uh, more explicitly on, you know, basically the things people care about, uh, things like ensuring there's a healthy population, but also being responsive when conflicts arise. Uh, and And we we've outlined a process called adaptive management, uh, which we can talk more about, but. Uh, we've outlined in the plan that through this adaptive management process, uh, we expect the wolf population to to range somewhere in this 800 to 1,200 uh, overall statewide uh, population size, but recognize it can be really variable depending on uh, where you're at in the state. Talking to Randy Johnson with Wisconsin
0: DNR, large carnivore specialist there looking at a new wolf management plan. You can join in at 800 642 one two three four with your questions about this new plan uh, do you have wolves in your part of the state uh, do you see interactions between uh humans livestock pets and wolves that worry you or do you think we're at a pretty good level right now join in at 800-642-1234 that's 800-642-1234 randy let's dig into that phrase you mentioned adaptive management what does that mean when we're talking about wisconsin wolves
2: sure it- You know, in a word, it basically means continuing to learn from what we're doing and get better at what we're doing. Uh, So implementing different management actions, whether we're talking about uh, hunting seasons and how the population responds uh, to uh, things like the conflict abatement program. How are we how effectively are we reducing conflict and helping those that 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 need assistance? Uh, as well as the population itself, continuing to monitor and, and ensure that it's a healthy and sustainable population. Uh, it, it's an ongoing process. We implement these different actions, monitor, review, and, and ultimately try to improve uh, as we move forward. There have
0: been concerns raised, I think, in, especially in parts of northern Wisconsin, that the wolf numbers, uh, some people say, are too high uh, worries about depredations on pets and livestock. They're worried that uh, the numbers that are going to be maintained here are too high and will lead to more of those conflicts. Can you talk about how you you assess those arguments a- a- and weigh those?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's been that's been a huge component of this this process is. How do we balance out all the different desires and, and perspectives related to wolves? and no question wolves uh, can and do cause some conflicts and often those conflicts, those impacts, if you will, are disproportionately you know uh, uh, felt by those living and working and recreating among wolves in, in our case in northern Wisconsin. so uh, it's important to recognize that and, and try, try to uh, work towards, Uh, you know, improving that situation. But at the same time, you know, the science and in our own data, our experiences show that generally speaking, some of these conflicts are not well correlated with the overall statewide number of wolves. And this comes back to their biology. You know, they live in, in packs and territories, which occupy, you know, certain spaces and uh, certain packs can, can learn to cause issues uh, with livestock or pets. Uh, whereas most packs don't. And so uh, having the ability to deal and resolve with those conflicts, you know, where they're occurring at those locations is the most effective way ultimately to try to reduce some of those issues. Uh, whereas, you know, again, most of the PACs uh, don't get into those issues. So it's having that site-specific abatement, uh, which is, is a really important tool. Bring on a
0: caller at 800-642-1234. John is with us in Milwaukee. John, hi. Hey there. What do you want to bring up?
1: Um, I was just going to ask how many conflicts we have record
2: of in Wisconsin. How many of these, you know, I would assume they're wolf attacks on livestock. Um, how many of those do we know about?
0: John, thanks for the call. Randy, what do we know about reported numbers of wolf uh, depredations, I think they're called, on livestock?
2: Yeah, sure. So so this year we've had a a little over 100 total reported complaints. Uh, And and when we get a reported complaint, uh, we work with our partners at USDA Wildlife Services to send out a trained biologist to investigate, look for the clues, the tracks, et cetera, and and verify whether or not wolves were involved. And typically about three quarters of the time they're verified as wolves. Uh, So this year as of just a couple days ago, we're at 77 verified complaints. Um, of those, uh, most eh, a little over half, two thirds uh, are related to livestock, uh, and, and the rest are uh, hunting dog complaints. John, these these numbers are are, are generally on par with where we've mm-hmm. been the last few years. John, thanks a
0: lot for that call, Randy. If it seems like okay in this uh, area on uh, these livestock farms, we seem to have a pattern of uh, repeated attacks on livestock what kind of tools are there to deal with that and i guess we should answer in two circumstances uh if wolves are considered an endangered species federally uh which they currently are and if they're not which who knows maybe next year they won't be
2: that's exactly right yeah so so we we unfortunately do see these uh, situations arrive we call them chronic farms where they have uh repeated uh depredations or conflicts repeated you know livestock uh being killed or, or harassed uh and in currently with wolves being federally endangered or listed as federally endangered, we, we don't have access to the lethal controls. So we have non-lethal tools. We have financial compensation. You know, those non-lethal tools can range from uh, anything from, you know, electric fencing, something called fladry, uh, which is uh, fencing related um, to auditory flashing lights, those types of things, anything that uh, is a novel Item introduced, you know, around these these areas that uh, makes wolves shy away. Um, it can also be things like uh, improved fencing, changing husbandry practices, some of those different uh, you know behavioral changes, if you will. Um, and all of these are, are kind of custom fit to the situation, to the farmer uh, producer, and, and and also depends on if it's the first time something's happened or or obviously if it's the the 10th time something has happened. Um, But in all of these cases, unfortunately, uh, the non-lethal tools, wolves can become conditioned to these and they lose their effectiveness through time. Uh, And that's where the importance of the lethal controls comes in. There are certain cases where once wolves become conditioned, those non-lethal items lose their effectiveness. Sometimes the last step we can use is to lethally remove some of those wolves uh, to get get, uh, those, those conflicts to stop. Talking to Randy Johnson, large carnivore
0: specialist for the Wisconsin DNR. He's talking to us about the agency's new wolf management plan. You can join in at 800-642-1234. How would you like to see the wolf population in Wisconsin managed? Do you have questions about uh, the DNR's new plan just approved by the uh, Natural Resources Board here in Wisconsin. Join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts and questions about wolves here in the state. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Farad. We're picking up our conversation about Wisconsin's new wolf management plan. Randy Johnson stays with us, large carnivore specialist for the DNR, and you can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions about the state's new wolf management plan? Have you been following this story over the months, over the years? Do you have uh, strong feelings one way or another about how we deal with wolves here in Wisconsin? Join in at 800 642 one two three four that's eight hundred six four two one two three four or email ideas at WPR dot org. Go back to your calls now with Frank on the line in Springboro. Frank, hi, what did you want to bring up? Yeah, you know, regarding the the wolf population, um I've I'm actually a local reporter up here. I've been covering issues about the wolves and I've talked to you know Adrian White uh some wolf experts and you know the thing that that always uh sticks out to me is that in wisconsin wherever you have a dominant wolf population you don't have deer with chronic wasting disease and i would think deer hunters would look at that and say well that's a good thing that's that's what uh, a healthy wolf population brings to say northern wisconsin and eliminates those uh, deer that are sick uh, or possibly sick uh, deer with uh, chronic wasting disease so uh, i think uh, managing a wolf population that eliminates uh, deer is a good thing. Frank, thanks a lot for the call. Randy, do you take that into consideration, uh, managing Wisconsin's uh, deer population as you're looking at the wolf management plan?
2: Yeah, that's definitely something on the table. Um, <clears throat> what he's referring to is some, some, I guess, relatively recent research in the last 10 years or so that's kind of suggestive that large predators, including wolves, can be effective at uh, identifying deer that are, are sick with chronic wasting disease and, and removing them off the landscape and you know it, it stands to reason that may be helpful in the long term to help uh, control the prevalence of CWD Now it's also fair to say that the research is ongoing in this and and the the, the final the scientific answer, if you will, is kind of uh, still to be determined but um, you know at, at the same time it's it's been well established through through the research, that wolves are effective at helping maintain a generally healthier deer herd. Uh, and, and ultimately, that that's beneficial to both deer as well as hunters.
0: Thanks a lot for that call. Uh, Randy, I understand uh, in some cases, hunters have been concerned. Well, uh, if wolf, wolves are eating deer, are there fewer deer for me to hunt come hunting season, not too far off? Uh, how big an impact does that have?
2: Yeah, I mean, it It really comes down to what scale we're talking about. On the statewide scale, you know, Wisconsin's deer herds are doing excellent. We've got lots and lots of deer in this state. So very little concern, very little impact at that population level. However, you know, at the, at the very small scale, for example, some hunter on a, maybe a 40-acre parcel, you know, wolves can definitely impact the uh, behavior of deer on that scale. They can change where they're at on the landscape. They can change their movement patterns, all kinds of different things. And these can, uh, definitely translate to, uh, you know, impacts on deer hunting. Uh, and so, you know, not necessarily, uh, removing all the deer from the woods, uh, to put it, uh, you know, frankly, but, uh, but they definitely can have their, their impact. But I think the same thing could be said for for many things out there in the woods, right? Other hunters, vehicle, other recreators, all kinds of things. So it's it's kind of one more thing in the landscape that uh, hunters need to be aware of and, and be adaptive to. Let's go back to our
0: callers. Bill is with us in Bayfield County. Bill, hi. Hi. Uh, my question is, I'm completely blind. I can't see a thing. I can't see if the sun's shining. And I live right in the middle of Bayfield County. There are a lot of wolves in this county. And, in fact, last fall there was a male and a female that came up on the field behind my house, and they couldn't have been more than 150 yards away. What, what resources or tools would I have available? Because, quite frankly, I'm concerned to go out of the house at night. Bill, thanks for the call. Sorry about that. The, that's a worry. Randy, what do we know about uh, safety of humans in places where wolves are prevalent?
2: Yeah, so it's it's always a concern, right? And and people's comfort levels with with wolves or or really any wildlife, any carnivores, it it varies person to person, for sure. Um to be clear, we've never had a wolf attack on humans uh in modern times in Wisconsin. Uh, the times that that has occurred in all of North America in the last 100 plus years is is I think, you know, less than less than 10 for sure. It's it's just a handful. Um, that said, you know, there's still a large wild animal that deserves respect, uh, and so it's important to keep that in mind as well. Uh, what we have for resources, uh, in addition to some, you know, educational type things on our uh, DNR website, is uh, again uh, partnering with USDA Wildlife Services. Uh, we have uh, contact information posted on our website. Folks can call that at any time, 365, you know, days out of the year uh, and, and call, uh, to get assistance with such, uh, wolf conflicts. Um, and that can range from, from all kinds of different things, uh, just depending on the situation. Um, but the best place is to call wildlife services and, and start that process to get the assistance you might need.
0: Thanks a lot for that call, Bill. Randy, before we run out of time, I want to ask about, uh, wolf hunting. I know a lot of people are concerned about that. Now, While the gray wolf is considered endangered here in Wisconsin at the federal level, no wolf hunt. But if that changes, I believe state uh, statute requires a wolf hunt. Uh, How does that all fit into this management plan?
2: Yep, that's exactly right. If and when wolves become delisted uh, in the future, uh, state law uh, requires Wisconsin to implement a wolf season. And so a big focus of this updated and and new wolf management plan is uh, addressing that reality. Uh, you know, looking at uh, what would a future season look like uh, as far as implementation? How can we improve it? How can we make sure we meet state quotas? Uh, and, and what have lessons learned been uh, during the past wolf seasons held in the state? Both in uh, as recently as 2021, but also uh, there were three seasons held back in 2012, 13, and 14. So, uh, really uh, outlining. Uh, improvements to how those seasons will be implemented in the future and, and really just being ready, uh, being prepared for if and when uh, that change in legal status comes to make sure that we can set up a, a wolf season that uh, is, is well run, well implemented, uh, but also provides uh, quality opportunity for those that want to participate, uh, all while trying to meet our management objectives uh, and ensure that the wolf population itself remains healthy.
0: Let's go back to our callers, Rana is with us in Cameron Rana, hi Hi, good afternoon. I'm excited to get the answer to this question. Uh, I have been wondering what first started um, uh, in Wisconsin what first started us trying to control populations of particular animals uh, wildlife, what was the kickoff animal, and what were the circumstances and and why did we do this? And how did it gotcha. grow and evolve? Rana, what thanks, it is today? thanks for the call. That's a huge question for our last couple of minutes, uh, Randy. But you have uh, thoughts on the, uh, the history of why we, for some species, have this in-depth management plan?
2: Well, that's a good question. We, you know, f- from the DNR's perspective, we have management plans for some uh, species and certainly not all. Um, but I think with high-profile species such as uh, wolves, uh, we have a black bear management plan. Uh, we have, I believe, turkey. We have, we have a handful of management plans and we're looking to develop more. Um, you know, in today's world, there's a lot of competing interests, uh, both from the human side on wildlife, but also making sure these populations stay healthy. You know, there's obviously a lot of ecological benefits. There's a lot of impacts to humans through uh, agricultural damage, things like that. And so this is, this is kind of the department's way, if you will, of trying to outline these programs uh, the objectives, the goals, the, the strategies, uh, and trying to capture this in something that uh, is, is digestible ultimately to the public and, and gives us some good direction. Uh, and then again, of course, continuing to update these as the decades move on uh, to, stay, to, to stay effective in an ever changing world.
0: Rana, thanks for the call. In our last half a minute or so, Randy, now that this plan is approved, what happens
2: next? Um in the immediate, the, the short term here, we're, we're taking the document and we're providing some some final formatting. And so we're hoping to have a, a final uh, document to post on our website and share broadly uh, very soon. Uh, and then, you know, we'll get to the business of implementing the plan. I think one of the first steps that we'll look to do is bring together a wolf advisory committee, uh, which includes stakeholder groups, tribal participants uh, or representation DNR staff and and a wide variety of folks to, uh, you know, start to get to the business of implementing this plan. Uh, And of course, all the while keeping an eye on that federal status, uh, if and when uh, a change might occur uh, at that level. Randy, we'll
0: leave it there. Thanks again for joining us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's Randy Johnson, a
0: large carnivore specialist at the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. He talked to us today about the state's new wolf management plan. I'm Rob Barrett. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time. This is the Ideas Network.